Hey, you're listening to the second episode of Africa's Millennials, an episode we named Radio and Single Stories. When I say we, I mean my co-producer Karoline Nørkja and me, Anna Skulberg. Maybe you guessed it, maybe not. We are from the cold Nordics, Denmark to be precise. But that's the boring fact. So, yeah, let the story begin. Together, Karolina and I have traveled Ghana, collecting fascinating stories about the world's fastest-growing youth population, the Africa's millennials. The question we seek out to answer is, is Africa's young people a ticking bomb, or are they also the continent's greatest potential? There are endless stories in the media about Africa's millennials. Most of these stories depict a black scenario. But the world is not black and white, so your notion of Africa's youth will probably expand along the way if you dare keep listening. And there is an important point or moral in this episode you're going to hear. It's important to your vision and perception, not just of Africa, but also the world around you. Because we, as humans, tend to put people in boxes and believe in the stories we are told about other humans. The phenomenon is called single stories or one-dimensional stories, and that's the focal point of this episode, Single Stories. An episode which is about death, honor, prejudice, and yes, radio. It's starts like this. My story of um, migration from the beginning starts from um, Dalon here. I made up my mind to travel to Europe. My name is Fatal Alassan. Dalong is a sleepy village in the northern Ghana, four hours drive north of a rundown dirt roads to the border of Burkina Faso, one of the poorest countries in the world. Here begins the journey for Fatau and his travel companion, a journey that takes him through Burkina Faso, further into Niger, a country that is extremely dry, extremely poor, and political unstable. From Burkina Faso, we entered into Niger. That's Niger. We entered into Niger. And um, after entering into Niger, we have to take another car from that place up to a town of Niger called Arlit. After three days in Arlit, a city known for its two giant uranium mines and to be a transit city for illegal immigrants who, like Fatau, are on their way to Libya and Europe. Fatau's journey begins at the close border between Arlit and Algeria and goes into the world's largest desert, Sahara. Daytime temperature can creep up to 57 degrees, while nighttime temperatures are often below zero. Before they prepare us to follow the desert, and um, after the three days, they came in, they gathered us. They have some three pickups, Nissan Patrol. So they told us that they will be taking us to the desert, we need to pay, and we agree with all. We pay the money, 
and we started the journey. A journey that proves to have serious consequences. I was excited, but when I started the journey from the desert, I regret myself of being in that situation. It's hot, it's hot. But before we go into the desert, we briefly step out of Fatou's story, because there's a very important and good reason you hear Fatou's story. Fatou has not told why he is migrating north. Ghana took an economic step in 2010, where the country shifted from being a low-income country to a lower-middle-income country. But Ghana's prosperity and economy are centered on the capital Accra in the south, in north Ghana, where you find cities like Tamale and Dalong, the economic situation is quite another. There is little work here, especially for the young people. Therefore, some seek fortunes in the south, while others, like Fatou, travel north towards Libya and Europe. Now you're probably thinking, yes, yes, that's exactly how I imagine it is in Africa. The people flee from hunger and distress. At least... It is the story told over and over in the media. But here comes an extremely important point. Many of the young people who migrate away from northern Ghana do not travel away from poverty and poor conditions. They travel away due to misinformation because they have heard stories that life is better in Libya and Europe because they think there is work in the capital, because, yeah, the grass is greener on the other side, as we say in Denmark. These stories, the single stories, are everywhere, and we can't imagine anything else once we have grown up with these one-dimensional stories. Take me as an example. I grew up with my parents' words, eat what's on your plate, kids in Africa starving. But after a single day in northern Ghana, I discovered that the children were not starving, they were smiling and healthy. I'm not saying that there's like disasters in Africa, certainly not. I'm just trying to point out that my point of view of the entire continent of Africa was colored by my parents saying, kids in Africa are starving. And similarly, Fatah has grown up with the story of others from the city who've migrated to Libya and Europe and got jobs so they can send money home. Left from this town, some of my brothers came from that place. They were able to do some small things for themselves. So I also see that what I'm doing in the house here is not good for me. Why not also go there and get something and come and start up for myself here? So after graduating, Fatou couldn't find a job. He could choose to take care of his animals or believe in the stories of Libya and Europe being the promised land. But as is often the case with single stories, the truth turned out to be a whole lot different. Inside the car, they pack us 30 people. You cannot even stretch your legs like this. Sitting inside the desert with that car, in fact, it's not easy at all. It's very, very bad. 
I was excited, but when I started the journey from the desert, I regret myself of being in that situation. It's hot. It's hot. Inside the desert, they were patrollers, like uh, security people. And our people managed to escape them. They were not able to see us because sometimes when they see you with those people, they will catch you and deport you. And uh, so our people were able to escape them. And we even face a lot through the desert because uh, there are some thieves inside the desert. When you are going with the car, they do chase the car that you are inside and stop the car. And all the belongings that you have, including money and the food that you are going with, they will take it away from you. Four days of heartless driving through desert landscape, 100 immigrants in three Nissan pickups. We moved with three cars, and those cars, those thieves, they were able to steal those two cars. But for, for the one that I am in, I think we escaped them. Two of the three cars were robbed of food and luggage. But they all escaped the local security patrols that capture illegal immigrants and resell them as slaves. After four days in the desert, Fatal reaches the border between Algeria and Libya, a crude rock landscape that makes it impossible to continue by car. They pay a new smuggler to guide them through the gold landscape. The one who collected us 5,000 sifa each out of the 100 people that they were carrying, he is now going to lead us to Libya. So those cars owner, they left and leave us with that man. So he take us through the rocks and we move about two kilometers. And um, he told us that <coughs> the journey that we are to follow now, we will be making about four days inside the rocks before we reach to Libya. So anybody who knows that the person cannot walk, he will direct the person to walk and enter into Algeria rather than following us to Libya because it's not a small journey. So, and some say they cannot go, and some say they will go. And he said we are to walk about 100 kilometers for that very day. And through that journey, we came and reached some point. Some people cannot walk, about four people. They cannot walk again. And he um, <clears throat> have to use some razor blade to have some marks on their knees and their legs and massage them small for them to continue with the journey. So that man who was leading us, he did that. And apart from doing that, they were able to work with us to some point and they couldn't. So we have to leave them. We leave them back and we continue the journey. After three exhausting days, the small group catch sight of the border to Libya. 
we came and reached some point. And that man who was leading us, <coughs> excuse me, he said he will be taking another 5,000 safer from us, from each person again. And those passengers who came from Niger, they understand his language, so they said they will not agree. Already he has took some money from us. While, why will he be taking another money again? So he, he, they won't agree. And he said then, if they will not agree, then he will not lead us again. Then he left us. Without a guide and a village in the distance, Fantao and his travel companion continued on their own. If you are standing on top of the rocks, you see some villages. And if you are on top of the rocks, you see them closer. But it's not closer, you still have to walk more. I was going with one guy from this town. And um, they will go and leave us and he cannot walk again. So I have to manage to carry him on my back. I did that. I came to a point that I, I cannot carry him again. We walk small. I wait for him. We walk more. I wait for him. We came to a point. The water that we were holding, the water left small. And the food, uh, so I told him that as he cannot walk again, I will leave him here with the little water that we have and I will have to continue with the journey and enter inside the town so that I will come back to him and we continue the journey again. So I left him. It's four o'clock in the night. With a promise to return with water and food, Fatao continues by himself towards the village, which he reaches 12 hours later. So when I reached inside the town, I went to some bush. I have to hide myself there for some small time before I can come up because I was very tired and so exhausted. And um, so I went and bought one mineral with one biscuit. So I went and hide myself. I took it. So when I took it, uh, like 15 minutes time, I vomited all again. So from that point, I can see that I'm getting myself better. So I have to move to some house. I saw one man coming with a car. So I've, I've stopped that man and asked him that I want some water to go back to the rocks. I was coming with somebody. I left that person there. I want to go and bring that person. So he agreed. He took me to their house. He gave me some food. I told him that I cannot eat. I'm not... Uh, I don't have appetite. So he gave me the water, a full gallon of it, like one liter. So I took it, I go back, I went back inside the bush, inside the rocks. With fresh water, Fatal returns to the place where he left his friend. So I'm on the rocks roaming for the guy. I was searching for him till eight o'clock. I searched inside there till daybreak me at the rocks there, I was alone. So I said to myself that where I'm going now, I cannot find the one I'm going with. So I have to leave him and continue with the journey. So I left him and... Um, Unable to find his friend in the deserted landscape, Fatal leave. He reaches Albarkat in Libya, 
where he has a contact with a friend from his home village. According to Vatau's single story, his conception of uh, Libya, the story continues as follows. Fatau get a job, make lots of money, go back to North Ghana, where he buys a truck and start his own business. But surprise, that was not the case. Not at all. But before you get the end of Fatau's story, we are moving forward eight years. For the day when Carolina and I sit in a dusty back room at a local radio station and do the interview with Fatau. Here comes another point. Fatau has become wiser by his experience. Today he tells his story to young people in the community so that they do not persuade a utopian dream, but instead use their power in the local community to create jobs and form their life. And it's not only Fatal who uses the radio to convey the real story. All right, so today we're going to Karaga, um, also in the northern region of Ghana. This is Clement, managing the Youth Speak Up project. And uh, we're going to meet a community journalist who are trained under the Youth Speak Up project. Youth Speak Up is a project that has been behind the microphone to broadcast their messages and stories on the radio, the local radio. And it makes a significant difference, not only for the young people, but also for the Canadian community. Let me outline the challenge that young people face. One, there are many young people who are often well-educated, but not have any work. Two, the elderly decide and make decisions in the villages, in the communities, which means that the young people are cut off from all important decisions. They say that the young people will be summoned if muscles and not brains are needed. Usually when decisions are being taken at the community level, at the district level, the youth are relegated at the background. You only hear, I mean, leaders calling the youth when there is something like clean up exercise, if they don't want, they want them to do some, anything that involves hard work, I mean, physical things. But the decision-making process, they leave them Third out. point. Another problem is that the elderly don't want to show any problems in the community. They prefer a glossy history of the village uh, where everything works as it should. It is about theirs and the city's honor which should not be tarnished by the stories of pollution of water pumping stations that bring fresh water to the city's citizens. Run down roads, sanitation issues, women's rights, yes, small and big you know, problems. At first, it wasn't easy. They didn't understand the concept of this project. They were thinking that it, it was a kind of sellout program where we, 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 we want to expose them, their works, this person is not performing, this person is not doing that. You Speak Up project uh, came about as a result of uh, uh, trying to empower community uh, yeah. in their districts. So, Youth Empowerment for Life and uh, Ghana Vence Cup. Then we have other two partners, Hopping Academy and the RoomNet, came together 
to design this uh, particular project. Yeah. The project sought to build the communicative capacities of the youth and also create spaces for them to engage DT bearers on some of their problems peculiar to the youth and then the communities they are coming from in general. So we gave them trainings on uh, how to do radio production, radio presentation, uh, took them through the ethics of uh, journalism, and then uh, the broadcasting standards. The Youth Speak Up project worked with a lot of volunteers' youth from various rural districts. The young community journalists, as they are called, meet weekly to decide which theme to talk about in the weekly radio show. We take it upon ourselves to educate the people on the need to take up issues on their own, especially when it comes to community development. On the radio, they share and debate their stories, the idea for improvement, and it works. Because the young people uses the communication channel that reaches the vast majority of people, not only in Ghana, but throughout Africa. Radio is one powerful tool in Ghana that, um, if you're able to use it well, you achieve results. The radio. During the last 20 years, the number of small local radio stations has exploded, which is due to both democratization and freedom of speech. It has become more okay to say one's opinion, and also because technology has become cheaper. Over a six-year period, the number of local radio stations has increased by more than 1,000% in Africa. Another reason for the popularity of radio is because mobile phones have become the property of everyone. Everyone has the opportunity to call into the program and debate and express their opinions. And then it is important to remember that you should not be able to read or write, neither to send or listen to radio. So while the proliferation of the internet, smartphones and other new technologies has rapidly spread across the African continent, yes, it is the radio that binds the community together. So when the community reporters in Youth Speak Up tell their stories, the village old men listen. And over the time, they found that it's not about criticizing them and the community. This was not always the case. Just listen to Al-Hassan. My community people, you know, half of them are not in support of what I am doing as a community journalist. This is Al-Hassan. As he sits in the white polo t-shirt and gold frame glasses, he's looked like a law student and perhaps a rather young international business student with a promising career path in front of him. But the truth is that Al-Hassan can't get a job, so he spends all his waking hours working as a volunteer community journalist. One of the first stories he made was about the pollution of water wells in the community. Uh, in my community we had uh, about five boreholes. And uh, as at that time, two, only one was working properly. And we have um, a dam too. The dam, the, uh, as at then, the, the water was very bad. It was very bad and cannot be used by a, a human being. With only one of five water wells working, 
Girls and women had to walk many miles each morning to get water for the family. They, 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 they go to school and by the time they will get the water and come home, it will be something like 9, 9 uh, a.m. or 10 a.m. before they... When the women and children returned from the world, it was late and they didn't go to school. Al-Hassan interviewed a woman about this and the feedback from the community was not good. Um, the, the woman that I interviewed on the challenge saw me on my way to uh, Mox and tell me that and told me that oh Al Hassan, whenever you came, you come to me to, to interview me, I will not accept, I will not agree, I will not talk to you. But the story ends well when a delegation from the capital Accra in southern Ghana people, <laughs> people came from Accra just because of the post I did came and investigated the to, problem to make an investigation about the, the chilling that I said is happening in my community the water well were repaired so girls could get to school and the city could get water without have to leave the village on a half day trip fortunate Al-Hassan's story doesn't stand alone the community Journalist has got many things heard and they continue to reach out to politicians and the public through the radio and on social media. And in some quirky way, Al-Hassan's story is related to Fatah's, as you know, Fatah who migrated to Libya. Al-Hassan, in a way, broke the picture told by the elders of the village, the community, while Fatao did in some ways settle the story he had heard over and over, yeah, that Libya was the place where there was work and prosperity. Because, of course, arriving to Libya wasn't just piece of cake. Because Gaddafi was all over the news. Fatah arrived in the middle of a war. But he got a job as a construction worker. He got cheated by the first builder, contractor. And at later construction site, he was kept trapped as a working slave. And the war's devaluation of the Libyan coin, the money Fatah earned, did not do any good for his saving either. But two years after Fatah left the village of Dalong in northern Ghana, he's back where it all started. The story of happiness and wealth in Libyan Europe, yeah, it's not a happy ending because there are still young women who, with the belief of a single story in the baggage, travel to the capital in the south to pursue happiness, or young men like Fatah crossing the desert in the search of a Fatamogana. But on our way around Ghana, Carolina and I met a lot of young people who take things in their own hand and create something of themselves where they live. And judged by their smiles and good spirit, they face a brighter future. <laughs> the boys and girls from Youth Speak Up dream of becoming everything from... Uh, in 20 years, um, when I become a president... Politicians, journalists and dentists. So all the millennials we met agreed that a change is happening. And the future is bright. And Fatal, yes, Fatal could never afford his truck and lifestyle that he dreamt of before going to Libya. The money he earned yeah, was used uh, to buy a taxi, which he now roams around in Tamales' busy street to earn a 
coin to support his family, of course, with the radio turned on and the volume all the way up. You know, in life, one cannot say you have it all. You cannot say you have it all, or you are. Even a rich man is still struggling or he's still searching for more. So what I have, actually, I'm still looking for more, but I'm so I'm impressed with what I have. And I'm still struggling as I still have life. So that's what I'm going to say. This podcast is published by Ghana Friendship with the support of CISU's information pool. It is made by Anders Gulberg and Karoline Nørkjær. If you like our stories from Ghana, we can only encourage you to go there and see for yourself There are many more stories than those we have told. <laughs> I'm trying to do the rhythm for the pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. I am hanging on your face. Pay the woman hanging on your taxes. Pay your taxes. Remember your taxes. Remember. <laughs>